For decades, proponents of the early music movement have told you that the instruments that you know and love are not quite built the same way that they used to be. In fact, though most of the instruments of the orchestra existed in some form or other by the turn of the 18th century, often their function was not as definite as it is today. And because of that, as technology and engineering progressed throughout the 19th century, a large variety of sound qualities and technical possibilities within even one type of instrument, like a bassoon, for example, were available simultaneously. And I know when you think of the early music movement in general, often it's something along the lines of, uh, let's listen to that favorite work of yours, but this time using the instruments as they appeared back then. I'm being, of course, quite reductive, as there was so much more to the beginnings of the early music movement than simply using old instruments. But what happens when we go further back in time, past the point where the instruments we know to be classical today really existed? Of course, even some very ancient instruments exist, such as medieval church organs. But what do we do when we have the music and the knowledge to perform it, but only images and written descriptions of the instruments that were to have been used at that time? Well. We start reconstructing. So, are you ready for this? Oh, that's the wrong tape, sorry. And here we go. This is the Early Music Podcast with your host, Andrew Byrne. Brought to you by Rayma, the Early Music Network. Episode 4 A huge part of what we do in early music today, or so known as historical performance practice, we know through the rediscovery of the instruments. That's Catalina Vicens, curator of the Tagliavini Collection, one of the largest historical keyboard collections in Europe, and artistic director of the San Colombano Museum in Bologna, Italy. Just uh, the study uh, of these old instruments, these old musical technologies, so to say, has highly influenced what we perceive uh, and how we perceive this music to be. It opens a range of possibilities that without this rediscovery and continuous research and understanding of the building and the use of these antique uh, instruments um, would not be possible. The fact that these antique instruments open to us a world of sound variety and also certain restrictions, limitations that are very, very interesting to explore. But sometimes the instruments we end up performing with create a standard of expectation within the industry. We might even later learn that those instruments were not really used for the music we most associate them with. I asked Catalina for an example of this from both within the early music world and the greater classical music scene. We started, of course, with the former, the positive chest organ, which you see so frequently in Baroque orchestra continuo sections today. Yeah, well, so this uh, stopped pipe organs, which is not that they 
didn't really exist because there were versions of that for very specific uses but certainly the modern early music chest organ is really a very practical solution Fun fact, the Positive Chest Organ has been awarded the IKEA Practicality Prize by LM Rotem at Early Music Sources. You can watch the extensive video on the subject on the webpage for this episode. It's sort of part of an economy of performers, musicians and uh, music promoters and organizers that are creating this ecosystem uh, of music making and researchers, of course, that help us develop our knowledge. But in fact, there are practical reasoning behind also many of the instruments that we make. And especially with keyboard instruments, one of the issues is is that they are so costly. You invest so much money in making, for example, a very philological or so to say historical copy of an antique or even a new model that is just simply practical for uh, bringing into your orchestra to your baroque orchestra and then you find out no Bach never used that for his continuo and instead used the beautiful large organs uh, that were available as well Uh, This has been perpetuated, so to say, uh, by the early music movement in itself. On the other hand, we have something like the piano performing uh, Bach harpsichord concertos. We're listening to early music if we want to define early music as just music that is from the past but it is performed by a modern orchestra with a piano why not the music is still beautiful it's still Bach Um, just the whole general concept of what music is with this musical media so to say or mediums to create the music changes a lot When it comes to building these early instruments, obviously the first step is in copying existing models. Could you tell us how far we are in understanding the construction of early keyboard instruments? We think that the research is actually still very limited and it's an ongoing process. Already with the copies, we have so much to discover. I cannot underline that enough that there's so much work to do to understand the instruments and their use themselves, the ones that we have. But Catalina, what about those instruments that we knew existed? But were lost to the sands of time. Sorry, I'm getting carried away. Things from the complexity of the study of instruments uh, that are surviving will resonate with the reconstruction of only documented instruments documented either through iconography that for example for medieval instruments is one of the main sources of documentation that we have when catalina says iconography or iconographical source she means to say that we're looking at representations of an instrument which appears in either paintings or sculptures or engravings or carvings or tapestries so real works of art which depict in some form a musical instrument. There are questions, of course, which must be answered for any instrument builder who has to base most or all of their reconstructed instrument from an image in a painting, for example, relating to the accuracy of that depicted instrument. Is that 
uh, instrument part of the fantasy of an artist? Is it following a tradition of instrument making or is it composing his or her painting and not caring about details that for the instrument builder are going to be crucial? So you would need a critical sense to decide if the image can be taken at face value. Furthermore, a picture of a keyboard instrument or an organ doesn't give you enough information necessarily about how to build it or how the inner workings of the instrument actually function, does it? It's not enough to see a few pictures of this or sculptures. The instrument builder needs to know lots of details and the picture usually is not showing you so many things. I mean, the instrument maker it needs to interpret so much. To fill in the gaps, what other sources can builders turn to to look for clues? descriptions of the use of the instrument in literary sources, some technical descriptions that there are available. It gives us a window on how an instrument could have been conceived. Then we have the study, for example, of materials. We know materials that were available to a certain extent. We might have for the reconstruction of an organ, some historical pipe material. We can know a little bit of how much of iron and how much of lead there is in making this organ pipe, things like that. But there are so many levels of all this being unpredictable. Recently, Catalina joined instrument builders Winold van der Putten and Ingrid Noack Kirchner in a project to build an organ of which there is no extant instrument. This organ, however, appears in a very important work of art, the Ghent Altarpiece by Jan and Hubert van Eyck. The work was completed in 1432 and was one of the first major oil paintings in European art history. The work is massive. When opened, the altarpiece measures over 5 meters wide and nearly 4 meters tall. It is a highly ornate painting in the Flemish style and features numerous figures in incredible detail. Depicted on the interior surface of the polyptic, you can see that central to the upper level of the altarpiece is God who is flanked by the Virgin Mary and John the Baptist. On the far edges are Adam and Eve, but in the panels between Adam and the Virgin, we see angels singing from a choir book. On the right, between John and Eve, we see more angels, but this time with instruments, a single road harp, an early vial with five strings, and taking up most of that panel, a quite hefty organ. The painting is so detailed that we can make out a number of interesting characteristics about it. Take a look for yourself, I've put the link directly to the image in the show notes. But, in fact, there's more to it than meets the eye. We can find two different instruments, basically, looking at this through x-rays because one is behind the other. So the first layer of the painting of this organ that we can see through the x-rays has a certain keyboard. And then the, the what we see today, if you go to visit this painting, you see another keyboard, another layout, which could have meant another type of pipes, another tuning, who knows? It could influence lots of things. So what could be the reason that the organ layout changed between the initial draft and the final panel? You could imagine that the first layer would have been a copy of a 
type of keyboard layout that was used previously and this is a painting that was done over several years and so perhaps this became a little bit out of fashion and we decided at the end okay we do this new style of keyboard and I prefer the keyboard to start from this node and not the, that other node for whichever reason was it but that the instrument was really like that was it that it was a real instrument that was modified through the years as well or is it simply an aesthetic choice so it sounds like you still had a few missing pieces that you still had to fit together to make the final product. It's really a puzzle where we have only, even if extremely detailed pieces, but only very few pieces. And it's a puzzle that no one will be able <laughs> to reconstruct completely because we have to make up to invent some of these pieces. What are the results of an experiment like the reconstruction of this instrument, where no original organ of that kind survived? I mean, what's the point? I think the beautiful thing of it is that they open again another window into a possible aesthetic, into certain limitations to understand what we can do with this instrument. How does it fit with the music? and so on. And on the other hand, we need to engage into making this music with a whole lot of imagination. We need also to get used to a new sound. And this might take even a few generations of trained musicians that dare to go in, into making that step and changing the paradigm of how we're used to hear a specific performance practice. For example, the Van Eyck organ we would use for music of the early 15th century. And the fascinating thing is that we have some of the earliest keyboard sources also dating from the early 15th century, like the Codex Faenza. If you'd like to know more about the Codex Faenza, then check out the episode's webpage. The link is in the show notes. But of course, it's far apart, far away. We have some historical, political sort of uh, background. Also, this type of uh, instrument and artist was probably related to the court of Burgundy to a certain extent. Things that we can also relate to a musical culture. So now you have this instrument that gives you access to more possibilities when it comes to the musical culture of that time and place. But is it one and done? Can we go further? Is there more to explore? The thing is that we should be able to make more of these copies and, and be very courageous and daring to just experiment. But of course, they are quite costly experiments, so to say. Now, we can't end this podcast without having a listen to at least some of a performance of this Van Eyck organ, which was reconstructed by Catalina Vicens, Vinold van der Putten and Ingrid Noak Kirchner. This performance is an entabulated song by Guillaume de Machaut transmitted through the Codex Faenza from sometime between 1380 and 1420. Catalina explained to me that in this performance, she and the operator of the bellows, Christophe Deling, explored the expressive possibilities of having the organ's performance conceived as teamwork and not simply as a product of one player. You'll hear that there is a dynamic use of the bellows in this clip. If you'd like to hear this performance in full, you can do so by going to this episode's webpage linked in the show notes. So, here we go.
And so concludes episode four of ten in this, the third season of the Early Music Podcast. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Dutch-based international artist and keyboard specialist Olga Pashenko about keyboard instruments, how they work, why they were and are still so popular, and what she thinks about playing early repertoire on modern pianos. I'm Andrew Byrne, and thanks for listening. <laughs>